Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Eric Masewich at Van Duzer Vineyards in uh, Dallas. It's August 19th, 2022. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? For me, um, you know, I would say it goes back to, you know, basically some of the things I used to do when I was growing up. It's, you know, in some ways kind of like... Um, you don't always choose your paths, your paths choose you, and then you realize why you ended up here later in life. And I, I feel like wine was one of those things for me. I'm from New Hampshire, um, you know, not exactly a place known for its famous vineyards. <laughs> um, and, you know, I grew up working on a farm. My mom was really adamant that we would you know, learn how to cook when we were kids. She, she always used to tell us that, you know, I don't want you to go out in the world and you know, not be able to take care of yourselves. So basically from when I was young, you know, we always had like little fermentation projects going in the house. You know, we made a lot of breads. Um, we baked a lot, um, you know, did a lot of cooking together. And so I think broader than wine, food has always been a part of my life. I also grew up working on a vegetable farm. So, um, you know, I, I have memories of, of being a little kid. I, you know, I had this section in our lawn. It was basically like pure sand. And I just decided, you know, after working on this vegetable farm that I was going to come home and grow my own food. And so, you know, it was kind of a terrible idea, I guess, because <laughs> it, was, it was pure sand and nothing grew in it well. But I, you know, I tried my hardest. I shoveled a bunch of, you know, compost in there. But to me, it's this very satisfying feeling of creating you know, something with your hands, which I think is not anything necessarily unique to the wine industry. You know, there's a lot of people who say that, but uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's a culmination of all those things. You know, it's like my mom enjoyed cooking. I grew up working on a vegetable farm, um, not a family farm, but, um, you know, I'd come home and I had my own, you know, vegetable garden at our house and it was, it was always about food. There was always wine in our house, but my parents weren't necessarily um, you know, like huge wine connoisseurs necessarily. Um, and so all this stuff, you know, was with me in my life when I went to college. I was actually a plant science major originally. Um, but while I was there, I was going to college in upstate New York, and um, they have a small winemaking region there. Yeah, I was in the Finger Lakes. Um, I decided to take some classes on viticulture and enology. Um, my motivations at the time were somewhat because I was a college student. Um, if you're under 21 in New York, you can drink for educational purposes. Um, you know, but as I was taking the classes, I realized that it was something that was very interesting to me. You know, it was a lot of this, you know, flavors. It had a lot to do with cooking. Um, you know, there's the agricultural aspect that had been a big part of my life. Um, and I started taking more and more classes on it. And I was pretty much, you know, bit by the bug, I guess you could say at that point, where I realized, you know, this is something I definitely want to, you know, pursue more in depth. Um, so I did a couple internships while I was studying it. I worked in the Finger Lakes, you know, a couple vineyards out there over the summer. I also went to Spain. 
um, you know, did some work over there during the summer and kind of the early part of harvest. And then after I graduated, I, you know, realized that I, I was, you know, definitely going to be on the winemaking path. And so I, you know, traveled around California, Australia, you know, and eventually Oregon. Um, but it's been interesting for me because now I've been in the industry for, you know, 13 years is how I count it. And a lot of these things, you know, my childhood, I didn't necessarily connect the dots until more recently. And it is one of those things that you get off, often asked the question, you know, why wine? It's, it's, it seems like a very basic question, but it's also, for me, it's very, it's kind of a complicated question. It's complicated to explain in a way that feels meaningful, I guess, on the level that, you know, you have to have the right amount of passion to be in here, but it's, it's hard to put it into words. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what I'm going with for now. We'll see if it changes in a few years, but that's, that's my, <laughs> my current feeling, so. Tell me about your experience uh, in college uh, as you started to kind of focus more and more on enology and viticulture. Uh, what was the program like and what did you, what about it encouraged you to continue down that path? So the program was um, mainly research-based, I guess. We had a lot of really small fermentations compared to production winemaking. You wouldn't necessarily think it was, it wasn't the same environment. A lot of our fermenters were like 100 liter fermenters or something like that. So, you know, we, we would get the fruit in and it, it's not necessarily an analog to you know, what I saw in the real world of winemaking. But what was interesting for me is I would go home after these classes, you know, I think being exposed to the broad range of different winemaking styles that are out there, um, the different flavors, the different possibilities, reading about, you know, how, how you can work with the different ingredients and really, you know, create something that's uniquely your own. There's, it seemed like there's an endless world of possibilities. And also, for me, science has always been something I've been very interested in. You know, a lot of times people say, well, is wine making art or science? And my answer to that is it's um, science to be artistic. And what I mean by that is if you understand the science, you understand your vision. A lot of the history of wine, you know, we've known that this is what you do because, you know, for instance, in Bordeaux, they blend early. It's, it's something that you do, it's an important thing for making better quality wine, and we haven't necessarily understood why we actually do that, but now that we have the science, we can understand why we were doing that. You know, it does make better structure on the wines over time. Um, people didn't know that, you know, hundreds of years ago, but that doesn't really seem to matter because they, they figured it out eventually, and now we're in a unique time where we, we do, we can understand that, and it really allows us to hone our artistic vision. If you have this idea that, you know, I want to make a wine with this profile, you can get, you know exactly where those flavor compounds come from. And, you know, of course there's limitations to what you can do just based off of what the vineyard gives you, but, you know, you can find a vineyard that's closer to what you're looking for or, you know, push that wine in the direction in the cellar. And I think I, understood that by being at a place that was very research-based. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were talking a lot about the science behind it, you know, paying a lot of attention to, you know, the chemistry and, you know, just that, I guess, natural desire I have to do a lot of, you know, work and things like that. The fact that I was a kid, I'd, I'd ride my bike to work, go work eight hours on the farm and then come home and shovel compost. It's just always, I just like a hard day's work. It's just what I like to do. 
And um, yeah, I don't know, it just seemed, it just seemed very interesting to me. It's one of those things that I think it's hard to put your, like I said, it's hard to put your finger on it, but I, I definitely had some sort of draw mm -hmm. in that way. Tell me about your first uh, then real world wine experience, winery experience. So my first real world winery experience was I guess actually technically a vineyard experience and I was working for a vineyard and winery um, called Hazlitt and they are in Hector, New York in the Finger Lakes. Um, they primarily specialize in Riesling. Um, they do as well some other vinifera varieties and some hybrid wines as well. Um, you know, and that was back when I was uh, 19 years old. And it was primarily because I wanted to learn more, you know, about the grape growing process. Um, the, obviously it made sense for my schedule. I had the summer off. Um, so, you know, I wanted to find, this was after I had taken a couple, a couple classes on winemaking and I realized that I wanted to, you know, learn about it from a more practical sense, understanding that a lot of my classes were talking about the end product and they, they you know, conceptually talking about winemaking, I wanted to see it in practice. And, um, you know, I was pretty much just doing everything out in the vineyard. Um, you know, it was a lot of handwork, you know, we've pulling things like that. Um, sometimes they had me on the tractor, which was, you know, I knew how to drive a tractor, but it was a little bit terrifying because, you know, you've got this this hedger, which, um, you know, is a vertical tower with like three blades on it, and then another blade on top, and it's got, you know, three controls. You're trying to drive down the row, till behind you, or mow behind you, hedge, and then you're on, the, in the Finger Lakes, you're on these steep hills next to the lakes because the water, um, is, you know, the lakes there are like 500 feet deep, they're carved by glaciers. So the best vineyard sites are on these slopes. And so the air circulates in the winter and the early parts of the spring, helping keep the vines a little bit warmer and just makes it a better growing site. So I was, you know, happy whenever they put me, you know, back on hand jobs. But I never ended up doing the harvest with them because, you know, I was back to, back to class in the fall, um, you know, but it was just a full summer, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting job. Um, you can kind of see, I think, a lot of similarities to any farm work. You know, there's a lot of community with the people you work with. You end up having, you know, kind of silly conversations or something. Just, you know, you're stuck with someone out in the vineyards, you know, pulling leaves for eight hours a day. Like, you're gonna talk about whatever. Um, you know, but, but to me, that's also an important part about winemaking is just kind of being with people and, um, you know, so I, I thought it was a great job. I thought it was, you know, I learned a ton and, um, you know, it just kind of reinforced in my mind that I was on the right path. So after graduation then, uh, when you had a chance to kind of strike out, uh, what, what, were you, what were you thinking about, like, you said you could, your path, you kind of had your path in mind, your winemaking path. So what did you think you needed to do to accomplish? What was the next goal for you? Well, I think for me, you know, my goal was to basically get the most diverse experience that I could. I had already kind of been working on that since, you know, my second job was basically working in Spain. Um, you know, I went and I guess in my mind, the first area I wanted to go to was, um, you know, California, just because you hear a lot of people talk about it and I wanted to see, you know, experience it for myself. So I graduated and I went to um, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and I was an intern there, um, just you know, working in the cellar. Um, 
You know, it's a much bigger position than I guess I'd imagine. It was much bigger than any of the, any of the wineries I'd worked at before. Um, the place I worked at in Spain was, um, you know, it's still fairly, it was a family owned business and it was smaller. Um, and we were doing about 3,000 tons that year. So, you know, often I'd be put on, you know, a variety of different jobs. I'd be on fruit receival. Um, rackings, inoculations, things like that. It was really, it's really about the nuts and bolts. And um, you know, I, I think one of the best things about that job is, you know, I worked with some guys who had been cellar hands there for, you know, 20 years, and they took a lot of pride in their work. And it's something that I think is important to this day. You know, if you have a facility that's clean during harvest, you know, it looks good. You make sure it sounds silly. You just, you know, you keep everything organized. Your hoses, you know, are you know walked consistently at the end of the day. So if someone comes into the cellar, it looks good. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a huge lesson I took away from that. Um, and just kind of what it means to, you know, not only work a long day, but to, you know, really learn something about yourself. I guess you could say when, when you're tired and, you know, you're just ready to go home, but you know, if I do this little extra step, you know, it's actually gonna make the wines better in some way. You know, if you're gonna clean the equipment better, you know, there's not always someone looking over your shoulder, but you know it's the right thing to do. Um, I think that's where, you know, sometimes people can get a little bit frustrated during harvest. You know, they think like, all right, come on, man, I've cleaned this destemmer. Like, this is like the 30th time I've done it. And like, whatever, I'm just trying to get out of here. But I think that's, you know, if you can get people to kind of feel that, like this is really what good winemaking is, then, um, you know, it's it's not necessarily the position where you see, you know, the person who is the winemaker. It's all the little actions that go in between. And that's what I felt I learned from those guys. It's just like, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You are a winemaker if, um, you know, you put the effort in and you're contributing something. Mm -hmm. So. After what you'd sort of heard or learned about California before that, what, what, how did it kind of fit with your impressions? I don't know. I don't know if I'm one for, you know, I've been to a bunch of different places, done a fair amount of traveling, so I don't know if I'm one to really stick to my preconceived notions. Um, you know, I, I think you can read about a place or watch a video about a place, whatever. It's always going to be different than you expect. So it's hard to say. I think the big thing that surprised me would be, you know, just the scale of it. Like I mentioned, it was much larger than any other facilities I'd worked at. And, you know, I would dig out so with reds when we had reds coming in. Um, you know, I dig out tanks, so they had this funny setup where um, you couldn't actually dig the tanks out. They were too short. Normally, you just slide a macro bin underneath and dig them out into a macro bin. Well, the tanks were too short to do that, so we dug them out into like 30 or 40 gallon brutes and then slid those over to the press, and then we'd load the press by hand with two guys. You know, so it'd be like five people digging the tanks out or something like that. And I guess for me, that was kind of striking. It was like, here's like this big famous name winery and it's like they got this wacky setup, you know, where I would go dig out like a 20 ton fermenter in the morning and then we'd load these small presses, you know, like after that. And um, <laughs> it's, it's just funny, it's like, you know, and I always say this that, um, you know, there's never a winery that was really designed right 
there's just there's always something weird in every winery I've ever worked in. Um, you know, I've definitely worked in some that are that are nicer than others, but there's always something funky during harvest. You know, when you just push the facility to the limit. <laughs> there, there's always something like that. You know, we even have a, a big oak fermenter right here in the barrel room, that same thing, you know, but now I know how to dig it out, go get the little brutes. <laughs> so. So after, well, okay, next after Stag's Leap. So after Stag's Leap, uh, my girlfriend was still in college. So of course it was, um, you know, and that was back in New York. So it was back to the Finger Lakes. Um, so I found a job working for a fellow named Kim Engel who, you know, I guess is someone who you might describe as like a natural winemaker or maybe, um, you know, has a style that I think there's some kids in Brooklyn who are trying to imitate, but he does it out of just, you know, the pureness of who he is. Um, you know, he was a great farmer. He had really small production. And so I guess I went from, you know, kind of larger scale thing to, you know, very intimate. It was 15 acres he had planted when I was working there. Only about 10 of them were um, actually, you know, production vineyards at that point. He had been growing up a new planting. Um, so it's just baby, you know, one-year-old vines and we were just getting them established. Um, but what was cool about working for him is, you know, everything was very much in tune. You know, he wasn't one to use a lot of pesticides or anything like that. He was definitely, you know, a little bit more hands-off in the cellar. A lot of times, you know, what we would do is um, we would spend the morning picking the grapes and then by the evening we'd have everything picked, we'd stack them all up on a trailer, drive them over to the winery, and then we just process them by dumping them into the stemmer by hand. And we had a little tiny, you know, it was probably about this tall and maybe this wide, held like a half ton or a quarter ton of whites, and we had one pump. <laughs> And if you turned it on a second before a liquid hit it, it would immediately burn. So it was just kind of this, you know, it's this very small scale production. Everything was fermented in macro bins. I think maybe that was the time I was the coldest ever in my life, you know, pressing out these, uh, these red fermentations of Cabernet Franc in the Finger Lakes, you know, just dipping my hands in to scoop the grapes into this press. Um, you know, but he made some really interesting wines. I thought through, you know, the farming and also just kind of the the nature of how the wines fermented. The reds fermented hot and they were more traditional to what you expect for a fermentation, but some of his whites would ferment very slowly because he had an uninsulated basement where he fermented everything basically. So when it was extra cold, the wines just didn't really move much. But it, you know, I guess I would say it kind of felt more like what winemaking used to be before a lot of modern technology. You know, we had a December and a press, of course, but you know, a lot of it was by hand. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed the wines I made there. I felt a lot of pride in knowing that I was the one who was working on the vineyard, tending the grapes. You know, I helped pick them. And then, you know, I was there, um, you know, helping process them all the way through. Um, so I still have a few of those bottles. That's, that was back in 2013. Um, you know, in my cellar, and I, you know, I just think they're, you know, they're fun because it's like I did the, I did the whole process mm -hmm. on these ones. So, um, you know, whereas a lot of times in the wine industry, you know, even if you want to, you don't necessarily have time to, you know, there's some folks I think who are, you know, running their own vineyard and winery and they get to do both, but it's kind of rare. A lot of times you have to kind of focus on one aspect and it, it was a fun, 
position to be able to, to do both sides. So what came next? So after that, it was Australia. Um, and if I thought Stag's Leap was big, then this place, you know, made Stag's Leap look like a little drop in the bucket. Um, I really wanted to make sure I had my lab knowledge down. And I had the idea that if I went to a larger winery with bigger budget for, you know, lab stuff, um, that would be the best opportunity I could find to work in a lab. So this place did about 200 to 400 tons a day. And I think we processed, gosh, I can't remember. Well, I can't remember how many tons total, but it was a lot. You know, it was hundreds of thousands of tons by the end of harvest. And, um, you know, I wasn't really in the cellar there. I was working in the lab. Um, it was interesting because they probably had about 30 people they would take on for harvest. It was near Margaret River in a place, it was the Shire of Nanup, which was this little tiny old logging town that had just kind of gone defunct when they closed the logging mill down. And when I was living there, you know, there wasn't much to do outside of work in this town. There's these beautiful beaches about 45 minutes away, but you couldn't necessarily just go down there after work. We had three different shifts at the winery, and um, you know, so I was on night shift for a lot of it. So I have these, I have these interesting memories. You know, I, I actually think a lot about music when I think about, you know, different harvests. There's always, you know, we've got a boombox here. There's always someone who inevitably, you know, is the is the DJ during harvest, and they always repeat some of their favorite music. Um, you know, so they always had Triple J radio going in the cellar. So now every time I hear, you know this Australian station talked about or whatever, or see it, I'm just like, oh yeah, Nanop, working in Nanop. And I also used to listen to, on my bike ride, I because well, I rode my bike to work, I didn't have a car, um, and we lived in this crazy house that was like, out in the countryside, there's no electricity, and um, I think it had like a water holding tank, but I don't know if it even had a well or anything like that. It was like totally off the grid. Um, and, you know, so I'd, I'd ride my bike back and forth to work. It was like a 15-minute bike ride to get to this house. And I, the Arcade Fire album Reflector came out, so I just had these memories of, you know, headphones in, riding through the night, you know, to work or whatever, you know, full moonlight, just all by myself on these dirt roads with, like, there'd be, like, kangaroos and, like, emus in the woods around me. And it's just, like, this kind of surreal experience. <laughs> Um, but the job itself, you know, I got everything I wanted out of it in the sense that, um, you know, I really did learn a lot about the lab stuff and it was really fun for me to, there was people from Chile, France, uh, you know, Argentina, Spain, you know, the United States, Canada, there, it, you know, it's an international community who came together. So, you know, we had a good time. You know, we had parties and things like that on the weekend and it was just a ton of fun. And I think for me, that's something that, you know, moving forward in the wine industry, I always look to try and emulate. I like to bring people from different regions because, you know, that's, for me, winemaking is about bringing people from different parts of the world together and, you know, sharing diverse perspectives. You know, it's, it's something that's been important to my, me in my career, and I think it's fun, you know, you just have a good time with different folks when 
you know, you, you, I don't know, it's just a great melting pot, so I love it. And, you know, I think that was the first, being the fact that it was such a large winery and, um, you know, we, we processed so much fruit there, you know, they needed so many people. It was a unique experience to get just a bunch of, you know, diversity of perspectives, so. So at that point, you had, you had worked uh, a number of different places, you'd seen a number, a number of different styles, obviously it's vineyard work and winemaking work, lab work. Um, had your sort of, had your path in your head changed at all at that point, or, or had anything along the way made you think differently about what you wanted to do? No, I, I think for me, you know, at that point, I mean, I still knew that I wanted to be in the wine production area. I think if anything, it had been reinforced just by having all these really cool experiences. Um, but I think for me, what had changed in my head is I realized at this point, you know, it's like kind of a pain in the butt to get jobs sometimes when you're traveling around, you don't have a place to live. And, you know, there have been times where I'd like shown up in a country, I had like 400 bucks in my pocket. And it's like, all right, I gotta find a place to live and get to work fast, you know? Um, and sometimes like that, that would just be like, all right, I've had enough. Like I'm ready to try and like find a place that matches for me, you know, long-term. Um, you know, so I think I left my job in Australia looking to kind of settle in. I was hoping to find a full-time job because I realized that, you know, I'd gained a lot of experience in various realms of winemaking, but you know, aside from, it wasn't even really the complete process, you know, when I worked for Kim in the Finger Lakes. Um, you know, I got to work through the growing season into the harvest, but, you know, I didn't see those wines to bottle. And I realized that that, you know, really was the next piece for me is that I needed to, you know, be there for 100% of the process. Um, and I wasn't necessarily sure what that was gonna look like, but um, I made the decision to go back to Napa. Um, I worked for a place, it was a custom crush facility. My idea was that, okay, I need to, you know, make as many connections with different winemakers as I can, so I'm gonna go work for, it was a small, high-end custom crush facility. They had made, you know, a bunch of wines from bigger name winemakers, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll have an opportunity to meet a bunch of people here. And, you know, it's certainly true that I did, but fortunately, I guess for me, the um, situation kind of changed a little bit when I got there. The seller master at the time um, just quit actually right before harvest, so that kind of sucked for everybody. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was what it was. Um, at that point, I wasn't really a great forklift driver, but it was pretty much, we were all thrown into the gauntlet and kind of, you know, shoved into this, this really challenging harvest. Um, you know, because another, one of the full-time seller guys had a, a back injury. Um, he had broken his back when he was a child. So it was basically just the intern crew by the time, you know, Harvest really got rolling. And so I guess I'm not one to shy away from a challenge. Um, you know, I saw it as a great opportunity to kind of step up. And, um, you know, I, I, I still just really, you know, we wanted to make these wines. You know, that's what we were there to do. We were working kind of crazy hours, but we had a great crew. You know, everyone was just really enthusiastic. There was, you know, that moment where I think a crew can go two ways when faced with a challenge. Everyone can get really pessimistic and just, you know, stop caring, or everyone can really, you know, coalesce together and, you know, create a stronger team. And, and we just, for whatever reason, 
Um, you know, I think I had a great boss when I was down there. Um, you know, Robin Ackhurst was running the facility at the time. And, you know, he was just really good-natured and positive. And, you know, I think, you know, it was a reason that we were all able to stay happy. There was, you know, hanging out after work, occasionally drinking beers. Um, you know, and I think that, too, is just such an important part of Harvest, as weird as it sounds. Um, but, you know, you, you've got these long days and you want to just hang out with your crew and just, you know, that's when you're, sometimes you're too busy to talk to each other. You might have jokes or whatever. Um, but, you know, if you just kind of all sit down together at the end of the day, have a couple beers, that's, that's when a lot of the camaraderie forms. And so I guess, you know, maybe Robin knew this before I did, but, you know, we always had beer in the fridge for after work. And, um, you know, it, it just turned out to be a great harvest, a great crew. Um, it was stressful for sure. I remember my first day off, I slept until four in the afternoon. My girlfriend was going to work and coming home. And so I woke up and she was still in the house. And I said, hey, what's going on? I'm like, why are you still here? Like, I thought you had to go to work today. And she said, yeah, it's, it's four o'clock. I went to work and I came back. <laughs> so, you know, that was definitely one of those harvests where by the end of it, I was certainly happy to see the end of it. You know, it's like, okay, we made it. You know, it was a beautiful thing when that last tank got pressed out. Um, but after that, they made me the cellar master um, for the winery. And so then I was in Napa for a little bit, actually. Um, you know, so I worked there. I worked with some, um, you know, really great winemakers. Um, Mike Smith was one of them. He was one of the clients, you know, who we were custom crushing for around there. He was the winemaker for Carter Cellars. We got to work with some really amazing, you know, iconic vineyards in Napa. Uh, we got a lot of fruit from the Tokolon Vineyard uh, while I was there, um, which is cool. You know, it's one of these vineyards that you can read about it. You don't always get the opportunity necessarily to try the wines from places like that. And it's fun to try them and see them through the whole process and really kind of make up your mind on, I guess, like Colt wines and decide if Colt wines are really worth it. Um, you know, I, I think that was something that, to me, you know, made me realize how much of winemaking can be, um, I guess, maybe marketing. You know, when, when you look at, like, you know, why certain bottles of wine get the bottle price that they get. I think it's, you know, sometimes it is marketing, but sometimes it is, you know, the wines are special. Um, you know, I think ultimately it kind of left me with the, the thought that you walk away with it, um, you know, what is a wine worth at a certain point? You know, it really depends on who you are. And, you know, it becomes a lot about the story and a lot about things that are beyond just the grapes and what's in the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it becomes a lot about the people. And um, so that was just something that was really interesting for me to see. Uh, and then after doing a couple harvests at Envy, um, I was, you know, looking to move on to the next step, and I went to work for a, another small producer in Napa. They were called Hourglass. Um, Hourglass was really an interesting time for me because, um, you know, it's small production. There's just two of us full time in the cellar, you know, um, and a consulting winemaker. But he was often uh, Tony Biagi. He was often, um, you know, busy with other facilities and things like that. So he didn't necessarily have the time to hang out with us. Um, just busy guy. So. Um, 
But one of the great things about working for Tony is, you know, he was really focused on the structure of wine. I think something that, you know, I hadn't paid a ton of attention to working at other facilities was, um, you know, I, I've been observing how the wines were being made and, you know, not, winemakers don't always necessarily tell you their secrets or maybe they don't know their secrets. Um, so sometimes I felt like, you know, we were doing things and there wasn't necessarily um, on my end a great understanding of exactly like, all right, what is the end goal here? Like, how are we reacting in different situations? And Tony was a Davis grad. Um, you know, he'd been working in Napa for 25 years before I started working for him. Um, so, you know, he was super experienced and, you know, very, very focused on the science, but also, you know, kind of knew when to ignore certain things, I guess. You know, which is an interesting thing to say, but sometimes the science can be misleading as well. You do have to go, there's always this aspect of intuition where in wine, there are these things that, you know, you know it can't be right. Everything might, you know, scientifically tell you that like you should make this choice, but intuitively you know that you need to make another choice. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, it was fun to work with someone who is a, you know, veteran of the industry in that way and see how he kind of, you know, approached situations and, you know, would use the science in certain instances, but say, we don't have to worry about it. In this instance, like, you know, especially with like, you know, handling fermentations, there's, you know, with, when it comes to uh, manufacturers and stuff like that, there's a million things they would want to sell you because it's gonna make better wine. But I think one of the main lessons I learned there is, um, you know, first, you're not gonna overcome your site. If your site's not great quality, your wine's not gonna be great quality. Um, but then second, you really have a very small window to build the wines that you want to build. And it really, it does, it always happens in harvest, which is not necessarily um, something that would be surprising. I think to a lot of people, it sounds kind of intuitive, but I think what was surprising to me was the degree to which that was true. You feel as though, you know, maybe afterwards you can, you know, blend things together and, you know, polish a wine to make it nicer or potentially, um, you know, tweak things in the barrel, use different oak. That you have these opportunities down the road, but you really don't. Mm -hmm. You've got your pick call and you've got your, your fermentation and then you've got your press call. And if you can nail all three of those things, then you're basically, you know, you've made a good wine as long as you don't mess it up in the cellar. That, at that point, you're just hanging out. Um, so, you know, Tony was always doing unique things. We, we would press our wines early. There were some reds that we'd press at 10 bricks because we had pulled the structure out of the wines that we wanted. And so we knew er that everything we needed was there already. And, you know, you can over extract, you know, pretty easily on Cabernet. And so, you know, it was this, this crazy system for me, you know, you think, oh, it's a red wine, you just ferment it until it's dry and then you press it, that's just, you know, that's how you do it. But, you know, it's kind of, it's outside of the box thinking, it's, you know, we're not gonna do it this way because we're not making a better wine that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really gonna look at all the inputs and figure out how we can make the best wine. And he also, you know, a, a huge thing to his credit, gave me a lot of autonomy there. Um, you know, he was obviously busy as a consultant, but he trusted me a lot to just kind of run the facility. So I felt, you know, that was really the starting of me, even though I had this conceptual knowledge of, um, you know, this is what good winemaking is, I really had to kind of think about it and realize, okay, so how are we going to run these fermentations to make sure our wines get dry? Like, you know, a lot of times in Napa, you do get stuck fermentations. It's a tricky, 
environment. You know, you're picking sometimes 28, 30 bricks, watering back, but then sometimes you'll soak back up and you don't realize it, so you have to pay more attention to the lab. Um, you're often 15% plus on the alcohol, and so, you know, it's just, it's really tricky. You really have to be dialed because, you know, to make the right wine during the fermentation, if you had to do a restart, then you've messed up. You didn't make the right wine. And so my main goal was to really, you know, get the, the technical part of my job down mm -hmm. and to make sure that I could get every wine over the finish line with as minimal inputs as possible. Um, and, you know, like I said, if, if it wasn't for Tony, I wouldn't have learned, you know, all those skills. And also, it was kind of a pressure cooker in the sense that, you know, we were a small facility, but we had a lot of fruit going through. We turned our tanks two and a half times, you know, so it was just super busy. And, you know, it was the kind of environment that I, you know, once again, it was a challenging environment, but I feel as though that's my personality. And if you can get it nailed, then, you know, it's a great lesson for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually, you know, I, had been thinking for a little while that maybe, you know, Napa wasn't necessarily where my heart was. Um, it seemed, I wasn't, I enjoy the wines that I made down there, but I wasn't always necessarily a huge fan of the giant alcohol, you know, really oaky style that we were making. And Oregon had always been very attractive to me. There were wines that I was often finding myself actually buying, you know, when I was out, um, you know, just for my own personal consumption. And that coupled with, I guess you could say, the stress of the wildfires, that was, you know, a whole nother thing on top. You know, one year our winery was um, just miles away from the mandatory evacuation zone. It feels a little bit like the doomsday when you've got, um, you've got a generator, you know, so all your wineries hooked up to power and water and you can still make wine, but you look 10 miles across the valley and you see every 15 minutes a plane coming and dropping fire retardant on these active flames burning down the hillside. Just, you know, you think maybe this isn't this place I should be. Um, and so, you know, for a variety of different reasons, I decided in, um, you know, late 2018, early 2019, that I was gonna make the move up to Oregon, um, you know, to pursue a style of winemaking that was, I think, more in line with what I like as, you know, a winemaker, and I think it's so important. As, as you get more into making the wines, it's more important that you really love the region and everything about it, and I, you know, like I said, I didn't necessarily feel that way about Napa. Um, one of the big things about Oregon that really, you know, drew me up here was I think it was a smaller community, um, more collaborative, more friendly group of people up here. That was very attractive to me. Um, and, you know, I came to Van Duzer for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I think one of them is we had a lot of really exciting opportunities here. Um, you know, the estate here I think is very interesting. There's really two different personalities of it. Um, the, the one half of the estate gets impacted by the Van Duzer winds. And so it can be very defined, very tannic, very structured. You know, it felt as though it was part of my past, you know, having worked in California, done a lot of work with CAB, really dialed in on 
you know, how phenolics develop and how sometimes the chemistries, you know, what are the bricks, who cares? It's not ripe yet, you know, and kind of understanding, you know, how you need to water the vines and, you know, allow them to, sometimes they'll, I would see times in California, our bricks would shoot up to 26 and then a week later they're back down to 22. So understanding that, you know, there, there's these situations where, um, you just have to trust your gut. And an interesting thing someone told to me was, you know, if you panic pick, you're guaranteed to make a bad wine. But if you, you know, roll the dice a little bit, then you might make a bad wine, but you might make a great wine. And so I'm always looking for the opportunity to make that better wine. And, you know, like I said, kind of throwing some of the science away, some of the basic things that might indicate it's time to pick, you just have to ignore them and you have to be in touch with your vines. So that was, you know, I feel like that's highlighted from the west side of our property. And then the east side here is very interesting because, um, you know, we've got these own rooted vines that date back to the 1980s. And, you know, that was what a lot of Oregon winemaking is. Um, and so, a lot of places they've had to rip it out due to phylloxera, but they still had it here. So, you know, it felt like we had, you know, a window into the past of this industry and kind of, you know, some of the earlier pioneers, you know, what they were making, how this, this industry kind of cut its teeth, you know, was here on the property, but it was also like a piece of my past. I felt like on the west side. And so I was just really, you know, thought this would be the right spot for me. And not to mention, we also have, um, you know, our new property up in Dundee, on Warden Hill Road that was, you know, baby vines when I started, but seemed, you know, really interesting as a prospect. It'd be, you know, a lot of heritage clones up there and it just seems like a great site. So I kind of thought, you know, um, if I have to pick a place, this has got to be it. So as you were, as you were looking up here, you mentioned you had had you'd had wines from Oregon that were appealing to you and, and the place attracted you. What was your initial impression as you got into Oregon of the wines, wines being made and the, and the people making them? I think, you know, weirdly enough, um, I, I had an idea of what I thought Oregon wines were, but you know, a lot of the good stuff doesn't make it that far out of the tasting room. <laughs> and so I didn't realize necessarily the diversity of styles that people were making up here. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what was actually most interesting to me is because, you know, anytime things are making it into the broader market, there is some sort of, you know, unifying consistency. You know, people see Willamette Valley and larger blends tend to be, you know, something that people will associate you know, with the general style of a region, but when you, you know, start tasting the different ways people might use whole cluster or different sites, different clonal varieties, you know, small bottlings that they're not big enough for national distribution, maybe they make 200 cases or something like that. Um, there's just a really huge diversity of style up here. And it was even bigger than I had realized. You know, I'd visited wineries, um, you know, in Oregon before. I've been up here, you know, traveled up and down the West Coast, you know, while I was living down in California. But um, it, it wasn't the same as actually being here, you know, talking with more winemakers, getting, getting to try more wines. You know, it really sunk in, you know, how much diversity was possible here. And I think, um, you know, how excited people were to talk about their wines and, and share their, 
you know, just their personal experience, um, their personal philosophies, which is something that I think, you know, when I was working in California, um, you really had to get to know a person before they'd let you in. Um, and so that was great. You know, I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, like I said, it was, it was something that I was looking for, um, you know, coming to Oregon, so I was happy to see that it was here. What I was excited about was, uh, you know, the winemaker here previously, Flo. Um, he had spent, you know, basically 10 years working here at Van Duzer. So he had a great understanding of the site and, you know, was, was clearly very passionate about his position here. And so, you know, I just saw a great opportunity to, you know, learn from someone who's got a lot of history. I think um, it's always important to learn from other people's experience in the wine industry. You know, it's so slow to, to gain knowledge, you know, because you have to, you know, make the wine, make your decisions, get your feedback, you know, maybe up to a year later, and then you have another shot to tweak it. Oh, that wasn't quite right. You know, we're never, I never view it as number one, that we figured it out, or number two, that we're walking in a straight line. You know, we're zigzagging back and forth towards our goal. And to make it even more confusing, sometimes you move your goal, right? <laughs> so um, you're, you're zigzagging to something that's not staying straight in the distance anyways. Um, you know, so it was, it was great to see Flo's perspective, um, you know, through the 2019 vintage, especially because, uh, you know, I think the 2019 vintage in some ways was kind of challenging for a lot of places. Um, here, luckily, we had the Van Duzer winds, you know, really just dried our grapes off and we had a good harvest. Um, you know, our fruit didn't, you know, nothing really happened. Bruce did a great job, our vineyard manager, at making sure, you know, we got really quality fruit into the facility. And, um, you know, things went pretty smooth. Mm -hmm. I think it was just a great year to, um, you know, get a good introduction and see the differences in, you know, the winemaking styles up here. Mm -hmm. You know, realize stock fermentations. What are those? Those never happen. <laughs> I mean, sure they happen, but not not like you know in California. Um, you know, I think I was a little bit worried that you know it always seemed like harvest was a little bit faster. You start picking in the middle of August in California, and it seems like it can be more leisurely, but I don't think it necessarily is. Whereas here, you know, um, you have a smart picking window, and so I thought maybe it's going to get super hectic, but. You know, it's, it, it seemed fairly calm. Um, you know, I think for me, it was really just trying to absorb everything as much as I could during that first vintage. Um, you know, just see all the different nuances and then also try and see it through this is, you know, someone else's lens. You know, how does that correlate to my lens? You know, where I approach things from. Um, which, you know, it's just one of those things that it, it just takes time and reflection um, to realize, you know, ultimately kind of, you know, where you settled on those points, I guess, mm -hmm. because sometimes you think you've understood it and then you look back on it and you're like, okay, I don't, I understand why I thought that in the moment, but now I feel differently about it. So, you know, I think looking back on, on 2019, um, you know, I guess that's, I, I have some of those moments where I was thinking like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting this, I'm figuring it out. You know, but as I've, you know, been here for um, a few more vintages, you know, I, I'm refining that, but I'm looking forward. You know, I, f I finally feel now that I'm at the point where, um, 
you know, I'm able to really start learning, I guess, if that makes sense, about Oregon wines. Um, from a making perspective, I've been learning the whole time, but now I have enough context to make the decisions that I'll do in these future vintages more useful to myself because I, I've, you know, kind of felt the extremes in some ways of, you know, what what the different ways of tweaking winemaking could be because now, you know, um, I'm the winemaker here, but we have Drew Voigt consulting with us, which he's a much different style than what Flo is doing. So that's been great for me to, you know, try that, you know, taste more wines up here, you know, really, like I said, just build this base of knowledge that allows you to have that intuition that I was talking about before. You know, when you have these winemakers who have been somewhere, you know, Drew's been here for, you know, 25 years. so you know, he's got a lot of that intuition. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes, you know, I might think, oh, well, what if we did it a little bit differently? Um, you know, it's still great to have him, you know, and then, you know, contrast it to what Flo was doing as, you know, like two guideposts, I guess you could say, and to allow me to kind of triangulate where I, where I sit mm -hmm. in between all that. Um, so. I don't know if I think I wandered a little, but. <laughs> In the best possible way. Uh, tell me about Pinot Noir then. What, what was your ex experience coming from Cab to Pinot Noir? Um, you know, I, I think one of the main things that I really liked was, like I said, the freshness. That was something that I was really looking for. But something that's always been interesting to me is that if you taste Oregon Pinot Noir, you take um, you know, the different sub-AVAs here, you taste California Pinot Noir and the sub-AVAs there, or you go to France, there's such a diversity of expression, and it doesn't necessarily have to be driven by, you know, like your oak program, for instance, if you're gonna make your wines a little bit different. Um, I think Pinot, you know, how you use whole cluster when you pick, when you pick is just, it's almost mind-blowing to me as a winemaker how different the wines can come out. And you might like them for different reasons. It can, it can be, you know, very stylistic, um, dependent, you know, on the winemaker, but there's a huge expression there, how much whole cluster you use, um, the soil, uh, the site, you know, it just seems like everything with Pinot being, you know, a lighter variety of you know, red wine does have such such ability to change. Whereas I think, you know, with, with Cab, um, you do get diversity obviously in different regions of the world. But like I said, I think, you know, its varietal characteristics is so strong, you don't necessarily see as much nuance. And it's, it's amazing to taste, you know, the colonial distinctions here, but also, you know, even more so the AVA distinctions. Um, and so for me, that's what's been really exciting. It's just, you know, we get to work with, um, I've worked with, you know, fruit from Ribbon Ridge, um, you know, the Dundee Hills, um, Chehalem, you know, Eola Amity, Van Duser Corridor, um, you know, and then just like other sites around the Willamette Valley that don't have a sub-AVA. But, you know, really getting them all here in the winery and, you know, we do, um, you know, a little bit of custom crush here as well. And just kind of seeing, you know, so now I'm working with all these different winemakers, you know, here and just seeing all these different styles coming in. And, you know, even sometimes we have, it's, you know, they're purchasing fruit from our vineyard, making it one way, we're making it another way. It's just, you know, it's amazing to see the different expressions. And, you know, that's, I think that's what I got into the wine industry for is being able to really, you know, kind of play with things and flavors and try and create something that's different. Um, 
and interesting. So take, take us through the, the transition then from assistant winemaker to, to winemaker here, and uh, what was the what was your comfort level with the with the site, the vineyard, the winery, and how how did that kind of all play out? I think for me, you know, if I was going to sum up my life philosophy, it'd be, you know, go as hard as I can till it breaks, and then dial it back just a hair. <laughs> so, you know, with that in mind. Um, you know, I was very comfortable getting more responsibility. You know, um, I was excited to have it. And, you know, 2020, of course, was <sighs> what a vintage, what a vintage. Um, not exactly the first vintage that, you know, you want to start your winemaking career on. But, um, you know, for me, it was very interesting because I'd spent so much time working in California with wildfires. And I kind of had an idea. I think for a lot of folks in Oregon, it was people threw their hands up in the air a little bit, um, didn't know what to do. But I had seen a lot of instances of giving it a shot and, you know, it actually working out better than you'd expect mm -hmm. because, you know, smoke is just one of those things that's so complicated. Um, we don't really understand how it works in the grapes 100%. You know, a lot of the chemicals that you pick up from smoke are there naturally in grapes. They're there in oak. Um, you know, they're already a part of the winemaking process. But yet, there's a distinction to it, you know, when it's wildfire smoke, um, you know, and that's undeniable. But the proximity of which your vineyards are to the smoke has a massive impact, and we still can't necessarily test for it. You know, we can't look at the grapes and say, okay, I sent it to the lab, it's got this number on it, I know what it's gonna come out like, we shouldn't pick. You know, I think it's one of those hard things where you, you want to pick to see what the best thing that you can do is. And so, um, you know, 2020 here, we, we did do a bunch of trial fermentations. We used all the tricks in the book with enzymes, and um, there's a specific way that I learned how to taste wines for smoke, you know, just with my previous experience. And, you know, we looked to see, you know, what can, what can we do here? Can we make smoke appear in these wines while they're young? You know, is it an obvious, there's no opportunity to make anything of any quality from this vintage, um, and we didn't find that to be true. And so, you know, we brought stuff into the winery and, you know, tried to make the best red wines that we could. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately they do, you know, have a tinge of smoke on them, which is not surprising. It, you know, came out in age. Often I find if you make it through Christmas without smoke taint, then you're probably good. Um, you know, with these wines, it was, it was a little bit longer. Um, before some of the smoke started to appear. But, you know, it's also one of those things that um, we're going to contend with as an industry. You know, I think climate change is a real thing. You know, you have rainy vintages, you know, basically the start of um, 22 here was very rainy and cold. Uh, obviously, a lot of different troubles in that way. You know, now we're going to have smoky vintages. So it, the way I view it is, you know, we used to know that um, you know, good vintages were good vintages because the quality was there and the flavor. We figured it out with science. We can make consistent wines. You know, there's no reason to have, you know, Brett in your wine if you don't want it to anymore. Um, you know, there's no reason to have bad VA in your wine if you don't want it anymore. So we've, we've moved past the point where a bad vintage could just be something along the lines of, you know, carelessness in the cellar. Um, and we've moved into this point where, you know, most vintages are good vintages, and then we have exceptional vintages. Um, 
you know, so now we have to kind of look at, you know, our definition of what a good vintage is and with things like smoke and rain, you know, as the climate becomes more extreme, you know, these heat events are tricky. And, you know, how do we handle it as an industry? You know, should we basically say anytime there's a wildfire, then we choose not to pick and we just inconsistently have wine? Or do we look at it as a challenge that we can kind of, you know, look to overcome or make into a specific style of wine that people might one day seek out? And, you know, I think um, if you're able to do it right, you know, and keep flavors in balance like you would in any wine, there might be a way, you know, there's some aspects of smoke that, you know, are negative, but there's also, you know, some aspects of rain that you could say are negative. Um, you know, so how do we how do we find a way to make something interesting and enticing to people, you know, as we're faced with a changing climate? Um, you know, so I think that's kind of been my story a little bit since I've been here in Oregon because I don't think I've had, 21 was, you know, we had really great quality in 21, um, but we also, you know, had the heat dome. So I don't think I've had a summer yet where it's been totally normal. Um, so I'm looking forward to that first normal summer. Maybe 2019 was the most normal, but, you know, we did get a ton of rain in September. Um, you know, but I guess that's not necessarily a reason that I came to Oregon. I didn't come here because I thought the viticulture would be, you know, extremely consistent, you know, it was more about the challenge. Um, if I had wanted that, I would have stayed in California. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then everything with COVID too is just has made everything interesting in the cellar. Um, trying to figure out how to, you know, keep everyone's mind at ease, but also, you know, there are these roadblocks and you have to just, you know, try and find ways to work within reality. You know, it's like, of course, would we have rather not had you know, the wildfires, yes, but it happened. So what, what are we gonna do to make, make the best quality that we can mm -hmm. in a situation like that is kind of how I see it. You mentioned earlier your own kind of winemaking lens and having kind of guideposts along the way as you've worked, worked under people and worked with people. So tell me where your lens is now. You've had a couple of vintages under your belt here. Um, and what kind of, what have you, Change. What have you imparted on the wines here in the last couple of years? Well, like I was talking about before, I think, you know, part of my, my view on wine, red wines specifically, I think we've been talking about a lot, but I can talk about whites as well, is, um, you know, structure and how you create the structure that you want in the wines and create something that's going to be appropriate for certain styles and certain bottlings. Um, you know, for instance, if we're putting a wine in a screw cap bottle, if it's a red, a Willamette Valley, for instance, you know, how are we going to approach the structure on that wine so that it's easy drinking, um, you know, it's soft, it feels ready, it feels ripe. Um, now, when we put it in the bottle, we know it's going to market quickly versus one of our, you know, higher end wines that are going on a cork finish meant to be aged in a cellar. Um, you know, and that, like I said, goes back to me a lot, even though it's very distinct on Pinot. I think feeling the texture in a wine, and when I worked in California, you know, we would send our fermentations in every day. We spent a fortune on lab analysis to get the structure right on our wines. Um, but the upshot of that for me was I got to also train my palate alongside of that and, you know, get to realize, you know, when I was tasting something and, um, 
I was actually tasting, you know, structure that we didn't like versus, oh, maybe it's just still a little sweet versus, you know, there's so many swirling factors at harvest and also understanding that your palate is gonna be different from day to day and trying to figure out how you can make a structure appropriate without necessarily always relying on the, the lab equipment. So, um, you know, for us, when, when we drop below five bricks here, we're always tasting our wines uh, regularly. I think that's a huge thing. That's part of my lens. That's, you know, I think something that I bring, um, you know, here is just a really intense focus on getting the right texture on the wines. Because I think, um, you know, getting, getting the pick right is super important but you can easily get the right pick, but then somehow the wine can be lost in the cellar mm -hmm. if you don't get the right texture from pressing and things like that. Um, but what's been interesting for me as well is, you know, we've had some wines in the 21 harvest that I thought maybe we lost the structure on somewhat. They went a little far and what are we gonna do with them? But you know, you put them in barrel and um, see them come around and also see winemakers make calls that I wouldn't make and then you know see how it comes around so once again it's you know it's this constant adapting and realizing that just just because you think you have a way that might be the right way does it you know there's always something else to learn and that's what i love about working with other people um and just you know having other winemakers around me in my career you know and making them all under one roof is it's just amazing to you know there's no other opportunity to have something, I guess, put in your face like that. Like, I did it different and see it worked out. It's like, you know, sometimes you want that. Um, and, you know, I think in general, in the Willamette Valley, I would say, you know, as I kind of taste through like historical wines and talk to people here, it feels as though, you know, just like as individuals, we're all walking, you know, towards a point in the distance, zigzagging, you know, I think, like the group mentality kind of does that as well. And I could be totally wrong here, but I'm gonna say it anyways. You know, I think for a little bit, there was this, you know, after we moved from the original, you know, establishment of the industry, people tended to push a slightly riper, richer style. And we're currently on a pendulum swing back towards greener, you know, more austere acid-driven wines, and I think it's my prediction that we're gonna land somewhere in the middle at some point. And I think, you know, in the next decade, we're gonna make our way back. And I think my personal style, my personal lens is, you know, somewhere there. Because I do think that there's, you know, with Americans in general, we look for a lot of rich flavors. We don't necessarily wanna overdo it and pick over ripe. But I think there's an opportunity to, you know, sometimes soften tannins. Um, you know, create richness in wines that don't necessarily rely too heavily on green or tannins. And I think we're gonna find ourselves somewhere in the middle, um, ultimately. You know, we won't be as ripe as they had been, you know, at some facilities in the past. And we won't be as green as some of the, you know, folks are now, but we're gonna be, you know, somewhere in the middle. I think that's the, the spot for the Wyoming Valley, especially with the changing climate and you, you just can't deny that grapes, they will go, the sugars and acids will do what they do based off of the growing season and they'll get ripe earlier, but the flavor and the secondary aromatics and all the interesting taste that goes into wine does what it does based off of time or some sort of internal clock. The grapes, you know, the grapes understand how long it's been. They understand how close they are till the end of the season and they know 
they understand it doesn't matter if it's you know, October already and my sugars are high, they're not going to make those flavor compounds until they're ready to make those flavor compounds. Mm -hmm. And you cannot avoid that. Picking earlier doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're losing something, you're leaving something on the table. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, you know, we never want to leave anything on the table as much as we can. Obviously, you know, we're going to miss, you know, inevitably, um, but sometimes those can be good. You know, if you pick, you know, in a way that you wouldn't have done normally, but you have to do it or, you know, you thought it was ripe and it wasn't as ripe as you thought. Like sometimes wines, you know, there's great opportunity for learning there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I'm sure my perspective on this will change as time goes on. But I know one thing that won't change is um, that you really do need to, you know, have the right amount of time for the flavor to develop. And if it continues to get warmer here in the Willamette Valley, sugars will be higher by the time you hit that time on average. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think we're going somewhere more towards the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, with whites, uh, you know, whites in California, I think, are something that I, when I worked down there, I never really enjoyed them a ton. Um, I don't know who enjoys a 14% white wine, but it's not me. <laughs> um, you know, so that, that was a huge, you know, having worked in the Finger Lakes at, for some of my first jobs, you know, we made really good Riesling over there, really nice acid-driven white wines. Um, that was something that was definitely very attractive to me about the Willamette Valley, making, you know, rosés that weren't just Saignets from Merlot picks or, um, you know, just a style of Chardonnay that's it's fresher, you know, more delicate, um, not necessarily as oak-driven. I think it's something that I've been really excited about here. And, you know, I think Oregon has a really bright future, you know, with Chardonnay and potentially other white varietals. It's interesting, you know, that I've learned the history of why, you know, at least from my perspective, what people have told me is why Pinot Gris took off is because um, you know, Chardonnay was also planted at the same time, but it was a UC Davis clone that was not necessarily great for Oregon because it was selected to grow in the Central Valley. And so, you know, people had realized that Pinot Gris tasted pretty good and the Chardonnays were just watery and boring. And so they just kind of gravitated towards Pinot Gris naturally. But, you know, now that we have better Dijon clones of Chardonnay here, I think we're going through a renaissance for sure. And the industry, you know, it, that's very exciting for me because the industry definitely has a strong direction onto where it wants to go. But like I said before, you know, I think even with the Pinots, you know, we're, we're a little bit on the austere side and I think there's room, people are a little bit afraid of being too similar to what California Chardonnay does, but there's room in the middle right now. And I think there's, you know, producers are gonna fill that middle area. And I think when I taste a lot of Oregon Chardonnays, you know, a lot of people are doing, you know, really nice wines, you know, in that middle area that's, you know, not super austere, but, you know, it's got some richness to it, but it's also got a lot of, you know, extended barrel age characteristic to it, you know, leasiness, a creaminess, um, interesting aromatics. It's, it's about barrel aging, but it's not about oak. And so I think, you know, it's gonna be really fun in Oregon to see where people take that style. One thing we were talking about a bit before the interview was the sort of creativity needed in, in your work. So I'm, I'm curious if you can give me, give me some examples of, of sort of the creativity it takes to be a winemaker 
uh, some, maybe something you're particularly proud of that you uh, a challenge you overcame or a, an obstacle that was that took a creative solution. <laughs> well, um, you know, I don't know if there's anything I'd say I'm particularly proud of per se. I think it's like often there's little day-to-day -day things that, you know, they don't seem like a big deal at the moment, but I've always seen, um, you know, creative stuff for winemaking in general. Um, you know, I remember once we bought a press at one facility I worked at. This wasn't my idea, but it was one of our clients' ideas, actually. It was in a container ship, and we had to basically, we would have had to have rented a crane to get the container off the back of the truck put the press on the ground, rolled it out, and then craned the container back onto the truck. And, you know, we were looking at it, it was just about the right height to get a flatbed tow truck to come pull the press out. So that's what we did. We called up a local towing company, and we used the winch to haul the press out onto the back of the flatbed, and then we lowered it down off the back of the flatbed onto the concrete. A lot easier than getting a crane out, and a lot easier than, um, a lot cheaper, I guess you could say. It's, it's fast, too. You know, they were out there five minutes, you know, something like that, and it was great. Um, you know, so there's, like, a lot of little stuff like that during harvest. Um, you know, for us here, we always do a little bit more fruit than we have static tank capacity for, so, you know, we have to turn tanks, and, um, you know, this year we're just kind of brainstorming things that we might do. Um, you know, and like I said, when we were talking earlier, if we don't have enough tank space, we might, you know, just rent a big tanker truck and bring it here to the winery and see, um, you know, if we can use it as a temporary holding vessel or something like that. Um, you know, I think there's always something in harvest. There's always a piece of equipment that's going to break on you. You know, once again, it's you, know, you have to be a little bit like water during harvest. You know, there's going to be rocks in the stream, but you have to just find a way to move around them, you know, without slowing down. And, um, you know, a lot of times that means using unusual vessels or something like that. I remember last year we had to press um, into some of our cigar tanks, which, you know, they're about five feet wide and 20 feet tall. We don't typically, you know, use them for pressing, but, you know, it's okay. Well, we've got our white wine fermentation finished. Like, what are we going to use this tank for? Um, you know, we're just, you know, using, using various bin ferments, things like that. Um, and, and just trying to find a way to work around, you know, if a pump breaks, sometimes our ideas don't work. I think maybe 30% of the time, it doesn't actually help you, it just might slow you down. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that's a fun part of Harvest is just, you know, and also getting other people, and that's why I say d diverse perspectives are interesting because, you know, I love it when my seller crew comes to me and they might say like, hey, you know, I've got this great idea on how we can do this faster. And maybe I never would have thought of it, but, um, you know, it works. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, let's do it. So. You brought up earlier the, new, uh, the newer site in Dundee Hills. Tell me about uh, the differences for you working on the two different sites and what you're sort of working to express between, the, between the, this site and that one. Well, um, so that site, you know, it's right next to Alexana. It's largely west-facing, but it does have, you know, it's on the north side of the property. It's close to, you know, I think people have probably talked about this in the past, but the border for Yamhill Carlton and the Dundee Hills AVA was not necessarily drawn on soil 
per se, but it was drawn on just, you know, we've got a road here, so, you know, we're gonna use that road. And, um, you know, so the site's very unique in the sense that parts of it, as they slope down the hill, are in the, um, you know, marine sediment part of the Wyoming Valley soil profile, and then we also have, you know, more volcanic texture above. Um, but I don't think the volcanic soils are necessarily as true to volcanic soils as you might expect them to be. They look red on the surface, but you get the wine in the cellar and it doesn't necessarily taste always like the classic Dundee Hills, you know, especially if you go over the hill, um, you know, down, down towards, um, you know, the other part of Dundee, um, where that's, you know, like Lang and, and everyone else on, on, you know, the Warden Hill Road and stuff like that, some of the older places are, you know, established. Um, I think it's a much different profile than what's over there. It's, it's much more like Yamhill Carlton. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we just have really interesting colonial selection up there. Um, we've got, you know, Calera, um, you know, one of the California Heritage clones. Uh, we've got Swan, Mount Eden, um, Cori clone, the, as far as we can tell, the real Cori clone, which came from some of the, budwood from some of the original plantings. Um, you know, we've got Pomar, Dijon, Vainsville, uh, Chardonnay, a little bit of Pinot Meunier, sparkling material, things like that. So, um, 943. So there's there's a ton of diversity at this site. Uh, so I think what you know we're really looking forward to is once we get it into the cellar, is you know seeing the different expressions that we can make off of one site. You know, you know truly distinct expressions versus um, you know things that oh we say it's a different blend but it really tastes pretty similar to that one. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there because um, you know we do have on the higher part of the western ridge. It's definitely, it seems thicker, the volcanic soils seem thicker up there and you do get that more red-fruited character. But as you move a little bit off that ridge in all the directions, there's the marine sediment and you get this darker profile. It feels more Yamhill Carlton, but um, you know, it's fun to be able to see these different wines. You know, it's five minute walk totally different wine, <laughs> you know? So I, I think there's just a, a huge opportunity up there for diversity of styles and diversity of expressions, which, you know, like I said, for me as, as a winemaker in the Wyoming Valley, that's something that I'm already seeing that's exciting and to see so much in one site mm -hmm. is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, come down here to Van Duzer, you know, we've talked about it a little bit so far, but, um, you know, the winds are obviously strongly affecting the west side of the property. And so we have a, a clear definition of style over there that is very different from the east side of the property. But I would say kind of the uniting factor of wines that we make here is that they do tend to be, um, I guess they feel a little rounder to me in some ways, a little bit softer. They don't necessarily have the same angularity of tannins um, that we tend to get from our Dundee property. and. You know, they, they have, I guess, like a soft richness to them that I enjoy. And they can be, you know, I would also say, even though they have a rounder texture, they can still be a little bit more red-fruited and a little bit more delicate as well. They're not, they're not necessarily as much in your face, you know, whereas I feel the stuff that we're getting up off of our, our Dundee property is really, you know, it's 
just absolutely packed with this dark, rich flavor, which is not necessarily for everyone. Um, you know, so it's it's fun to just kind of see the distinction between the two because, um, you know, I think they're both great wines, but just for different reasons. Um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, kind of what some of the things you're thinking about for the future in Oregon wine, specifically with varietals. Anything else as you look ahead to the future of the industry here that you're looking forward to, uh, something you're maybe fearful of or excited about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm more of an optimist, typically. Um, so I'm excited about a lot of things. You know, like I said, just the momentum that's here, uh, you know, is very exciting to me. Just seeing, you know, how many people have, you know, established this region, you know, done a ton of great footwork to really, you know, allow a foundation for all of us to build upon and to see where that's going to go. And, you know, I guess seeing how as the industry kind of picks up speed and like, um, you know, we, we realize what certain winemaking styles are appealing, you know, for a broad variety of reasons or, you know, the differences that we really want to highlight, you know, as that picks up, I think it'll be really fun to, you know, just kind of see how the style in Oregon really kind of coalesces together and, and becomes, um, you know, more nationally known and recognized. Um, but I would say, you know, on things that I'm, I'm fearful of, you know, I think climate change is always forefront of our minds, you know. I think the interesting thing for me is one of the reasons I thought, okay, Oregon's definitely going to be a safer bet than California in terms of climate change. But it's weird because, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, I guess it's not as linear as you'd like it to be, you know, if it was just a few degrees warmer, piece of cake, you know, um, but it's not, it's actually historic frost this spring, you know, heat dome last summer, wildfires in 2020, you know, we're getting kind of the full gambit. And so I think that's my biggest fear is how do we continue to make good wines when we have just a very challenging situation for us in terms of the climate because it'd be one thing if it was just warmer all the time you could plan for that but if it's going to be colder and then warmer well what do you do um especially because you know it's not necessarily like the growing season is elongating it's just that we might get higher temperatures within the growing season and you know maybe as time goes on we'll see that that you know we will get some elongation in the growing season as well and we'll be able to work around that um, you know, but that I think is a main fear. I guess, you know, water is always something that's on my mind. It was interesting for me to come up here because a lot of people just, you know, they just don't irrigate. Whereas, you know, down in California, everybody's, you know, on irrigation. And it was kind of weird to talk to people and have them say, yeah, we don't, irrigation, why? We don't need it. It's, okay, well, we'll see. But, and, you know, and I hope they're right. Um, but it's different soils. There's a lot of different factors. So, you know, I'm by no means the expert on that. But, you know, I still do think about that. Um, you know, I know here in 21, you know, we had to irrigate our vines a fair amount. Just the soil takes a little more water. It's got a little more clay in it. Um, and, you know, it's tricky. You can see the vines start to struggle a little bit. Um, so I think it's, it's just a matter of being creative, um, you know, with our viticulture and making sure that we're really on point. I think we're, we're lucky growing a perennial crop because we're so incentivized to take care of the climate and our land, you know, more so than, you know, farmers in general are incentivized, but for us specifically, because, you know, if you're gonna make a 20 or 30 year investment 
you know, over time on a piece of, you know, viticultural land. The more you do for that land, the more you increase the quality, it, it just benefits your own business. So uh, I think that's a great thing about the industry. And, and I think also, you know, with climate change, there's, there's a lot of things that people are really excited about here. And there's a lot of momentum towards trying to, you know, tackle it. But at the same time, there's a lot of old tradition, which, you know, it's a blessing and a curse for wine. It's part of why we do it to keep our, our human heritage going. But, you know, also it's got to be in a bottle. Well, you know, I mean, obviously people are using some alternative packaging, but for the most part, people want to buy a bottle of wine. How do you get around that? You know, that's inherently kind of a difficult thing for, you know, the climate. You can make lighter glass, but it's, you know, it's still not an ideal package. So um, for from a sustainability perspective, but also having a bottle of wine is something special on how it ages. You need to have it in a bottle to age if you want to make a high-end wine that's dynamic and is not, you know, static. I mean, it's one thing to put a wine in a package if it's going to be drunk, you know, within two months. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing if you're producing a wine with the intention of allowing someone to age it. So how do we kind of grapple with that and, you know, find a way around it when we don't, the technology maybe doesn't exist the way we want it to, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so. And what about what's next for you? Uh, obviously, uh, looking forward to your first maybe normal harvest at some point, normal finish <laughs> at some point. Uh, tell me about what you're looking forward to in the future. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I think I'm looking forward to, um, you know, really just getting more, you know, feedback. For, you know, as I think I've figured things out, getting feedback on that and figuring out what I got right and what I've gotten wrong. Um, you know, and really just uh, the constant process of learning, I think, in the wine industry and just getting to know more people up here in the industry um, since I moved up here and then it was COVID. Been a little bit of a recluse in the barrel room, it's felt like. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and just kind of, you know, connecti connecting with folks in the wine industry and just, you know, just connecting with people. Um, I guess one of my hobbies at home is I do a lot of uh, vegetable gardening still. Um, you know, and cooking nice meals with people is something that I always really enjoy. Uh, you know, I think it kind of ties back to some of the reasons I'm interested in winemaking, but, you know, you s we, we did lose that for sure during the pandemic, but just spending time with people, you know, especially, I don't know, it's just something about growing things. You know, you spend the time to create the plants, you spend the time, you know, tending those things, you know, you watch them become something and then you know a lot of traditional foods there's an involved process with just making them it's not just you know it's not a highly processed thing you're not using a machine to do it you're doing it by hand but there's something there's something special in that moment because it's it's obligatory time to spend with people you know like i said you have these conversations in these moments that maybe you wouldn't do normally and you're all on a shared task together. And I think winemaking is, you know, just like with food, there's a lot of similarities in those two things. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to spending more time with people in those ways. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have anything we didn't cover here today that we you would like to cover? No, I, I think we covered everything. I just want to say thank you, you know, for taking the time to interview us. I really appreciate it. It was fun to 
share my perspectives. Good, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. It was fun for us to hear and uh, nice to see uh, what you've done so far and look forward to the, what comes next. So thank you for your time and for hosting us here today and uh, we'll let you off the hook. All right, well, thank, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.